Let me ask you, <clears throat> excuse me, to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59. And while you're turning, <clears throat> just a few uh, words, I guess, of report. Uh, I want to say it's good to be with you. I was here before. <laughs> I was trying to remember. I was talking with our brother. I can't remember the time. I just remember there was a vacancy when I was here before. So if that puts it in some perspective, um, I think I was here with you on a Lord's Day for both morning and evening and a communion service. And I remember about halfway through my sermon noticing Jim Beggs sitting on the back row and having the awful thought, why am I up here? Um, he should be here today. But anyway, but it's good to be with you. I'm trying to remember, I think it was a man named, is it Albert McIntyre? Took care of me when I was here, but I think our brother said he's not out tonight, but uh, greet him for me. If you would, fond memories of that weekend in his home. I think his wife was away. It was just him and me, two bachelors for a couple of days, but it was a good time. And I'm also glad to be here because um, the Presbytery loaned me a car. I think you guys say hired a car. We would say rented a car. I've never driven on the wrong side of the road before. Other than one block of downtown Belfast that I do think I did on the wrong side of the road New Year's morning early, um, I was the only person awake, I think. But uh, other than that, I think I've been okay and been on the correct side of the road. But my computer failed me for the first time tonight coming here. It told me to go around the roundabout, go out the other side. It told me I had arrived. And I was at some trucking company or something. Uh, I tried to get around and Anyway, I had to make a three-point turn two or three times because it kept telling me to go here and there, and I finally made a phone call and got here. But um, anyway, that's par for the course, in my opinion, for the computer. It's right about 65% of the time. Uh, but it's good to be with you, and I want to share something that's been on my heart much in recent months, really. But um, as far as the work in North Carolina, let me just encourage you to continue to keep us in prayer. Uh, we still look at the churches in Ulster as our mother churches. Uh, we thank the Lord for the ministry you've known here and the Lord taking a bit of that blessing several decades ago now over our way. We were very blessed with the ministry of Dr. Alan Cairns and the mother church there in Greenville. My church is about three hours drive away from Greenville. <clears throat> My car can go to Greenville automatically uh, because I'm teaching in the seminary there now and uh, go down at least once a week and uh, had a good time with the men. We have five men studying right now, three that are resident students, and then two uh, students from Mexico that uh, actually their English is pretty good. Uh, they can talk about me in Spanish, and I don't know what they're saying, so I just try and read their faces a little bit. But uh, they're doing well in their studies uh, as well, so we thank the Lord. It's really remarkable uh, if you're familiar and keep Jason Boyle in your prayers in Mexico City, uh, the connections that the Lord has made down there. Uh, several men, some have come with us. Uh, Lalo Pena, a church about, I think it's about three hours or so away from Jason. It's actually just recently been constituted. Lalo's come on as a licentiate minister in the denomination. There are a couple other churches that ha ask these men to come. <clears throat> They're actually charismatic churches that have asked some of these men to come and do Bible studies for them to teach them better doctrine. Uh, that's just remarkable uh, to see. 
but uh, we thank the Lord for what he's doing there. Pray for Jason. He has a lot on his plate as a young minister. Uh, he's a very busy man, uh, but that busyness is due to blessing, so we thank the Lord. But pray the Lord will raise up men. We do have, as I said, some training in the seminary, um, but we have some vacancies that we need to fill, and uh, we don't have an abundance of men to fill them, so keep that in your prayers if you would, that the Lord will bless us with that. And uh, just continue as we would continue to remember you folks here. Pray for the Lord's work, as we say, in that corner of his vineyard. I want to read to you this evening from the first verse of Isaiah 59. And we'll read down through about half the chapter to the end of verse 15. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. But he that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there's none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. We'll end our reading in verse 15. We trust again the Lord to bless the reading of his word. And I will ask you to just join with me for a moment's prayer before we consider the word tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we come with grateful hearts to be found with your people and in a place of prayer. And we ask that you will help us as we consider your word. Lord, tonight, even as we would race through some texts, 
But give us help in preaching and hearing. Do give us wisdom for these times in which we live. And we ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. The words of verse 15 are not my text, but I draw your attention to them as we begin this evening. A little phrase, he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. Your nation, I'm sure, is little different than my own with regard to apostasy and sin and the results of that. But we have come to a point in which I said the other night, I don't recognize my country anymore. There's a phrase in verse 14 that I want to draw your attention to really is the first of four texts this evening. That truth is fallen in the street. As an example of that phrase from the 15th verse, I want to share just a story as we begin that I read in our news just a few weeks ago. Here's one, I guess you could apply it, departing from evil, made themselves a prey. It was a news story about a teenage girl in a public high school, and this school, among many, was allowing young men to use not only the young lady's restroom, but the shower room, locker room. And this young girl, before class one day, was sitting next to a friend, privately, quietly whispered to her that she wasn't comfortable with this boy being in the showers with them. Teacher overheard her comment, sent her to the principal's office, She was charged with hate speech. She was expelled from school. It's fine for the boy to be in the girls' showers, but it's not fine for one of those girls to say she's uncomfortable with that. The world is upside down. Truth is falling in the street. I want to try and compress for you this evening four key texts that really were the source of four messages, full messages in my own church on the theme of truth. I just kept having that phrase, truth has fallen in the street, to come to my mind, whether it was a news story of a cultural society change like that, whether it was the politics of our recent election two years or so ago, I guess, and just amazed at what parades as facts in the news and in the mouths of politicians. The world is upside down. Truth is fallen in the street. And so I want to look really at four perspectives, you could say, on truth this evening. And the first one, pulling from this text, I want to suggest to you is that of abandoning truth. And this is really the whole theme and reality of apostasy. Now, we won't have time to turn all of these texts up this evening, but when you look at the nation that Isaiah is speaking to, speaking of and speaking against in these words, and you notice the Apostle Paul draws heavily from this chapter in Romans 3 in the conclusion of his opening arguments about the revelation of God's wrath against sinners. And those things that follow on, 
He's described all of the ungodliness of the Gentile world. He then speaks to the Jews or the religious man who might somehow feel himself exempt from the condemnations of chapter 1 and well then of course proves they're guilty and sinners as well. And as he draws it to a conclusion in some of those bullet-pointed statements about the depths of sin, many are drawn from this description of Israel. And Israel came to this condition by abandoning truth. They were a people that had truth. Paul speaks in that very chapter about the advantages they had because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. There's another text in the Old Testament that speaks very powerfully of those advantages. The prophet Amos says that or the Lord says through the prophet Amos to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. A special acknowledgement that God had of this people. And that text in Amos, it just reminds me of a season in my youth when I was a teenager. I was reading through my Bible and a phrase late in Amos' prophecy about the famine of the word that God was going to send it really hit me between the eyes. Now you have to understand, in those days, I was a dispensational, anti-Calvinistic, Arminian young man. And Amos, or the Lord really says through Amos, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I'll send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirsting for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And he goes further and says, they shall run to and fro from the north even to the east. They shall seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. And I read that and I thought, how can that be? How can people want to hear from God? They seek God's word and God won't let them find it. He gives them a famine of his word instead. And that put my mind in a spin. didn't kind of fit with my theology. I didn't know it, but the Lord was wrestling with my theology. So I just started reading Amos over, 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 over again. And the one thing you pick up on if you read through Amos over and over and over again is that Israel had the word. Israel had the truth. The Lord said, I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and you commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Amos himself brought the Lord's word to the nation. And the false prophets brought Amos on charges, brought him to the king. This man's conspired against you in the midst of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. You see, the famine of the word that God was sending was a judgment upon people who didn't want the word. It was a judgment upon people that had the truth and they abandoned it. Sinning against light is a very sobering crime. And if you look at our nation's the light that God gave to us in the centuries since the Reformation. 
light shining to and from these nations even to the rest of the world. And we are among a people now privileged, you could say much like Israel of old, recipients of the oracles of God. And we have abandoned truth. I want to hasten to another text. If you'll turn to the New Testament scriptures, John chapter 18. I won't take time to read the full context, but you'll discover as you turn there, this is the Lord's appearance in his mock trial, really, before Pilate. The Pharisees, the chief priests, have brought him early in the morning They won't enter the judgment hall. It'll defile them to touch Gentile stepping stones, I suppose. They'd want to be able to eat the Passover. Pilate has to go out to speak to them, come back into the judgment hall to speak to Jesus, go back out to speak to them again. That in itself is almost humorous. But in these trips back and forth, Pilate comes to Jesus. And if you want to begin reading with me in verse 33... And Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? There are a lot of times over the years in my reading of scripture, I like to try and put myself in the historical situation as often as I can, try and piece together the context and what it was like. This is one of those times I I would love to have been a fly on the wall to see the look in his eye and hear the tone of his voice when Pilate asked Jesus or said to Jesus, what is truth? Can I suggest to you secondly that we come to seasons where men enter into what I call negotiating truth? Pilate knows the Jews for envy have delivered him. Pilate really has little respect for these chief priests. I mean, you think what he will hear of them over these hours, we have no king but Caesar. I'm sure that really impressed Pilate. The sincerity was oozing out of them. Pilate's looking at a situation. He's in charge of a province that's known for trouble. He doesn't want trouble. He doesn't want to hear from his superiors in Rome. How's he going to deal with this situation? Well, he can't deal with it on the basis of truth. 
Because the truth is, and the truth is obvious, is Jesus is an innocent man. He's committed no crime. When you think of the evidence of what he's done for the last three years among his own people, pretty remarkable the good that was wrought through him from a purely physical perspective, if you will. And the healings. But truth can't have a voice here. There are more important agendas that have to be attended to. Negotiating truth takes precedence over truth itself. It's a fearful time. It's a time where truth's fallen in the streets, when truth is negotiable. It has to be, do you say here in your political speak, spun? It has to be twisted and spun to fit the context, fit the situation, get the agendas accomplished. It's perhaps like it was in the days of Israel and the judges. There's no king in Israel. There's no truth prevailing in the land. Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. Well, we can say our amens and look at these two texts and the circumstances that surround them, and it doesn't take a lot of imagination to draw the parallels to the days in which we live. Truth has been abandoned, and truth is negotiable on every front now. But I want to talk to us a little bit and look at a couple of other texts this evening. If you turn just probably back one page in Bibles. There's another giant text with reference to truth in John 17 and verse 17. And our Lord's so-called high priestly prayer. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And here's where I could get into a lot of trouble tonight and take us very, very much longer than we should go for a prayer meeting. But can I submit to you a third thought this evening, and that is our need of discerning truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And again, the the application to this, the applications to and from this are, are many. But I want to focus a little narrowly here and just suggest to you that Really, in any time, it should be true of us, but particularly in troubled times like our own, it is vitally important for us as individuals and for the church and its own testimony to major on the majors, minor on the minors. I don't know where that leaves. We have primary and secondary, and I guess tertiary are those third-layer things. I don't know what the fourth one would be. I don't know. Is quadruciary a word? Look it up. My mother would look it up and tell me about it at lunch after church, I'm sure. But the point I want to make here is I'm sure it is as true in your country as it is in mine. Very often, we as Christians 
we want to apply the scripture to all areas of life. <clears throat> and, and we should. That's the right thing for us to do. But the problem is there are times in which we focus on secondary matters. It's not wrong for us to focus on them, but how do we handle them? There's a tendency at times to, to make everything a first-level issue. And everything isn't a first-level issue. There's some things that genuine, God-fearing, Bible-believing, godly Christians can disagree on. Now, we as Free Presbyterians have the unique perspective of allowing each other to disagree on baptism and still be in the same denomination. I have to smile at times and say, I'm very happy I belong to a denomination where I can change my mind on baptism about every 10 years and I don't have to leave. There's some difficult questions. I won't tell you where I currently am or I'll start a discussion. But even on things of lesser significance, people have opinions about health care. Do you go to the doctor or do you do alternative medicine? Which way is God's way? Some people have opinions on that. And the people on the other side, we have to win them over or beat them down. COVID exposed some of these things. To mask or not to mask? To get a needle in my arm or not to get a needle in my arm. I don't fault anybody for studying that, asking, getting opinions, forming an opinion. But it's one of those things. Does every Christian have to share that opinion? I think there's enough unknown about this thing. We should have some charity. There could be other issues. One of my companions in ministry years ago talked about in his church, and he said it with a smile and a loving heart. But he said, you know, we got people that every new brand of snake oil that comes along, they're, they're in it, and they're getting you in it. And it's okay to have opinions and pursue such things, but we have to be careful I want to put to you a question that I ask my people to put to themselves and I put to myself often. What is the first thing that people think of when you walk in the room? That can be a convicting question to ask yourself. What is the first thing people think of when you walk in the room? If we can humbly ask ourselves that question, it might help us rearrange priorities, rearrange the things that we can look at as negotiable in the right sense of the word and not negotiable. Go to Galatians 5. I'm not saying that now, but look at the fruit of the Spirit. 
Are those the kind of things that come to mind when we walk in the room? Humble, God-fearing pursuit of Jesus Christ. Jealousy for the doctrines of the gospel. And then perhaps patience, long-suffering, humility in our dealings with others on lesser things. Like I said, we could take thoughts and other texts a long way on this, but sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If I can't with clarity, with conviction, without twisting it, see something clearly on the pages of Scripture, then let me put that in a different spot than being the first thing people think of when they see me. Particularly in an age like ours, to be discerning truth, presenting in word and deed those things that undeniably, scripturally are gospel truth. But let me come quickly to a a final text. If you'll turn back to the prophet Jeremiah. There are other key texts in regard to truth in Scripture. These are four that I singled out, and actually I believe in my church I found a fifth one after I announced a four-part series, so there you have it. But the words of Jeremiah 9 and verse 3, they bend their tongues like their bow for lies but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. Bunyan uses that phrase in his Pilgrim's Progress, valiant for truth. There's another section of that where he comes, Christian comes to a man called Mr. Byans. He asks him about his faith and his religion, and he said, oh, we're all for religion, but we're not like these people. We differ from them in two things, I think he says. Um, We never go against wind and tide, and we're for religion when it goes in his silver slippers. And Bunyan said, well, you can't go with us unless you're willing to go against wind and tide, and you must honor religion in her rags as well as in her silver slippers. See, here's a man that wasn't ready to, what I submit to you fourthly, be found defending truth. Valiant for truth. There's some things we must be strong on. Valiant for. And I think it's important for us in considering the truth that we have in days where truth has fallen into streets. To let that truth and the grace of God that has shown it to us provide a confidence, but a calm in the midst of that confidence. I was reading Prophecy of Daniel last year. It may have been two years ago. My chronometer broke about 20 years ago, and it's all a mess now. But I thought of Daniel and his companions. These are men, their world was gone. They don't even have a church to go to. 
They're servants for pagan Gentile empires. God has sovereignly allowed truth to fall in the streets. He has sovereignly allowed Israel that was to be a light to the Gentiles, to preach truth to the Gentiles, for her abandonment of truth to go into captivity. And just as God raised up a Pharaoh, he raised up a Nebuchadnezzar. And here Daniel and his companions. But it's interesting when you see their perspective. They served with integrity and honor for these Gentile rulers. They weren't trying to go stick it in their eye, start a fight anywhere they could as often as they could. Even when there were times such as Daniel 1 where they and the men from the other nations that had been collected and were going to be trained and part of the, the court and the service there, well, you know the story. They were brought to eat of the king's meat and Daniel and his companions, we don't know the specifics, whether it was some of the dietary laws or the issue of meat offered to idols, but whatever it was, they knew there's a line they're not going to be able to cross. But they calmly speak to Melzar, the chief of the eunuchs, said, look, we need to talk. We're going to have a problem here. We don't want you to get in trouble for this, but this is where we are. Okay, thanks for telling me. Let's try this for a week and see what happens. Fine. Remarkable how humble and cooperative they were as they were telling him, we're not going to be able to cooperate. And so these men weren't compromisers, but they weren't panicked. They weren't fretting in days when truth was fallen in the streets, in days when Babylon ruled the world instead of Jerusalem, in days when ungodliness prevailed, they weren't panicked. You know what we communicate when we begin to panic in times like ours? Oh no, their gods are winning. Nebuchadnezzar's gods weren't winning. Turn to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar learned that in a mighty powerful way. Learned that. Let us be calm. Even when we look at things like I described for that high school girl. When we see our nations that we don't recognize anymore. And the hatred of our faith and perhaps even the persecution that looms on the horizon. To be calm in the face of that. To defend truth. Calmness doesn't equal compromise. And I by giving the example of these men defending truth. The vision of chapter 2 must have impressed Nebuchadnezzar, so he, as we read further, builds his statue and his image. He commands the peoples of the lands to bow down and worship. These Hebrew young men, we can't. It's remarkable when they're called before Nebuchadnezzar. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. Really, three of you. Pretty big army. He's able. But if not, 
Some of the bravest words in the Bible, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not bow down to your image. We will not worship this. They defend truth. And we know the story. They're cast into the fiery furnace. It's so hot, the men that cast them in are consumed. And there they stand. I love the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Did not we cast three men bound into the fire? Behold, I see four. I see four. Whatever God calls upon us to do in our age, defending truth, he will be with us. It is not time to panic. It's time to seek God. Be those people later described in Daniel as those that do know their God and do exploits. And calmly major on the majors and be faithful to him and defend his truth in days where truth is fallen in the streets. I pray the Lord will give us grace and the help we will certainly need to do that very thing. Well, we'll go to prayer this evening and I seem to have had a couple men follow me from the dinner table. I thought he was here to pull me out of the pulpit and report my sin of gluttony. But, uh, Brother Paul, would you open our meeting tonight in prayer?